Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people. Global trade has been taking very serious hits for the past few years. Trade tensions have been steadily ramping up, Brexit is rife with uncertainty, and the COVID-19 pandemic has completely upended trade. Lockdowns and radically changing consumer demand have added new turbulence. So should we just give up on trade? I'm Clara Young, and I'm talking with Julia Nielsen, who's the Deputy Director of the OECD Trade and Agricultural Directorate. Thanks for talking to us, Julia. It's a pleasure to be here today. I'm going to start off with that very question is, should we try to defend global trade? What's what's in it for us? Well, I think, you know, as you rightly said in your introduction, um, the COVID-19 health pandemic has given rise to a whole range of new strains and stresses, um, including uh, on the global economy and on people. And for me, it showed not just some of the strains that happen on global value chains, but also the absolute necessity of them. And I think if anything, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has shown how much we need each other because no country produces all the medical equipment it can need to fight COVID alone. No country can produce uh, uh, all the goods that it needs alone at a reasonable price. Could you walk us through how um, the, the pandemic and lockdowns, how they have changed global supply chains? We looked um, very closely at the at the supply chain for masks and, and looked exactly at how different masks are produced and, and what goes into them. And I think uh, one of the important things about thinking about supply of medical goods in the, in the current crisis is not to misdiagnose the problem. So uh, there were definitely a global shortage of masks and people felt that this was a sign that global supply chains had broken down. Actually, what we saw was an unprecedented demand surge. So even China, which produces about 50% of of the world's face masks, at the height of its own COVID-19 pandemic, couldn't meet its own domestic demand and was, in fact, importing from Europe. Then when Europe held its peak, it was importing from China. So what we've seen happen with masks is actually global trade has been the way that this huge global demand surge has been met. So global production of of masks, the global supply of masks has actually increased 12-fold in the crisis. And that gives you a sense of the kind of scale of the demand surge that occurred. So what we saw um, in the initial days was that, you know, hospitals tended to keep a store of masks in different countries, but it wasn't a very big store. This was considered to be a sort of low probability event. And when you buy a lot of masks, you're not buying something else. So, you know, when the demand surge hit, countries found they didn't have enough. And certainly in the initial days, there weren't enough masks to go around. But we've seen that the international supply response has been been huge. And since then, countries have had enough. So I guess there's two things that I'd like to sort of tease out from that story. One is that the sort of counterfactual is, well, does that suggest to us that global supply was the problem? And if everybody just produced their own masks, they would have been better. Well, I think there's kind of no evidence that that would be the case. In the case of masks, some bits are relatively easy to produce. Other parts of the the mask supply chain uh, are not and are very capital intensive and are very difficult to do. So not everybody can do them and not everybody can do it cost effectively. 
So some countries, especially low-income countries, we find have very limited production capacity in any of these kinds of goods, even face masks, and really do rely on others supplying them. Even for countries that can produce them, can they produce enough in a, in a crisis? And do they actually supply all the inputs themselves? Often they're importing an input in order to make a face mask that they then use themselves and also export. So for countries, we see a huge uh, interdependence among countries on this supply. And if countries tried to produce it themselves, it would be more costly and actually less stable because if the country itself gets hit and it's only supplying its own masks, then it has a huge problem because it has no supply capacity at the same time as it has a massive demand need. Um, on the other side, you know, we can also look to see that, that there are, um, there are real uh, trade-offs for countries. If, if you want to say, well, I'm going to produce all my own masks, then they, chances are that's going to be more expensive because you're going to have to sort of invest in a whole lot of new capacity. And there are trade-offs. So if my health budget is going mostly to masks, it's not going to a new maternity ward. It's not going to a new oncology ward. It's not going to a new MRI facility. So, you know, the question is always, um, what can we do helping each other that makes uh, supply not just more efficient, but also more secure and more stable for everyone? It could be not only more expensive for the system, but actually for everybody, because perhaps a face mask price would go up as well. Wouldn't that be the case? Very much so, because we find that even for countries that produce face masks, they don't necessarily produce all the inputs for face masks. Right. Um, and when you say so, inputs, they don't produce like every step that yeah, goes into so the Another way of thinking about ensuring supply is to think about, okay, we, we realise that we may have another pandemic. So we may decide that we want to ensure that we don't have a global shortage of face masks. So another way to do it is by a kind of international corporation that says, okay, we're gonna have some stockpiles of face masks. So we're gonna have either regional stockpiles or countries might stockpile more face masks. But of course, the most cost-effective way to do that is to buy them at the lowest cost uh, and then create, uh, create a stockpile for sharing. Another way to do it is to have uh, a forward sort of arrangement with certain companies whose supply chains can be adapted more readily to produce face masks to say, okay, we have a, a deal with you that says if we hit this kind of risk again, you will be able to transform part of your production line and produce masks for us, you know, at short notice. Right. Like what we saw with the, the sanitizing gel. That's right. There's been a lot of um, attention on trade tensions, but there's been also um, cooperation going on on the trade front between countries, especially having to do with vital supplies that everybody needs to deal with the COVID-19 virus. Could you talk a little bit more about uh, what kind of cooperation is going on? Sure. I mean, and I think this has been one of the things that countries have tried to do is um, while everybody's been under huge pressure, there has been a recognition that, that working together is essential and keeping the supply chains for essentials and not just medical goods, but also food has been critical. 
So the international community has done a couple of things. So pretty much everyone has agreed that it's important to be transparent about whatever you're, you're doing, that uh, things are uncertain enough for firms and traders as it is. So it's really important that people know what the conditions are. So part of that has been agreement by everyone to notify any trade measures they do take to the WTO, to the World Trade Organization in Geneva, so that you know, countries know what's being affected by import or export measures for how long, uh, and what types of products. Okay, so you're talking, for example, basically restrictions. Restrictions, but also actually facilitation. So okay. you know, the, the WTO recently put out a, a monitoring report, and this went from October through to May. And during that time, countries introduced about 154 new trade measures. Now, actually, the majority of those, 95 of those, were import facilitating because a lot of countries responded to COVID-19 by making it easier to have imports. They temporarily suspended or abolished tariffs on medical imports. They introduced new green lanes in customs so that essential goods could move faster through. That's just two examples. Uh, they changed from requiring paper certificates for food to, to allowing digital certificates so that things could move easily and you needed less face-to-face -face contact for people. So that's the sort of thing that people did to try and keep these, these international supply chains moving. But it's also true that 59 of those measures were restrictive, um, sometimes on, on imports, but often on export restrictions as well. So 93 of those 154 trade measures were directly linked to, to COVID. But we find that even the export restrictions that were put in place, um, a number of those have now been lifted because countries realised fairly quickly that it either wasn't necessary or that it was actually sort of more harmful and there was international pressure. And here's the second thing I'd, I'd like to highlight, which is the cooperation through bodies such as the G20. So G20 trade ministers and leaders um, have been focused on this issue and focused on trying to respond with a, a collective and cooperative response. So G20 leaders agreed um, quite early on that if these export restrictions in particular um, were deemed necessary, that any of those measures needed to be targeted, so only to the absolutely essential goods, proportionate, so not, not much bigger or wider than necessary, temporary, and that's the point I was making before, many of these have already been lifted, and transparent, um, as well as being consistent with WTO rules. So even though countries did resort to export restrictions and, and that, while understandable, wasn't a good thing, uh, they did manage to agree on some kind of disciplines to limit them. And I guess just the last thing to highlight is some groups of countries went further and agreed that they would keep supply chains open for essential goods um, and right. for essential food or for medical goods. Right. Has there been uh, any discussions to prepare for when and if a vaccine becomes available? How would that uh, global trade scenario look? I think there's a, an understanding that there will be a need for international cooperation to ensure that all countries are able to access the vaccine. We've been talking a lot about um, that supply chains need to become more resilient and more robust. Um, 
how have companies been adapting to uncertainty in their supply chains? I think one of the things that we can see about global supply chains is actually um, that trend towards global production was actually slowing down before COVID started. So the OECD produces a database called Trade in Value Added, which breaks down trade by all those little connections of this input to this input to this country to this country and really sort of unpacks what global trade looks like. So, you know, it's not that one, one good goes from country A to country B. It's bits of a good are produced in country A and they go to country B and then country C and other bits are assembled in D and finally end up in country E. So in the work that the OECD has done on that, we see that actually since 2011, that process has been slowing down. Some of that's to do with technological change and digitalization. Some of it is to do with the greater role of services in manufacturing. Uh, some of it is to do in some products for consumer preferences for sustainability or for, for closer production to home. Uh, and some of it, as you mentioned at the start, has been a response to the greater policy uncertainty from these trade tensions, you know, where companies aren't sure um, uh, about what the policy environment they're operating in. Uh, but what we see is that companies have a long history of managing risk uh, across their supply chains. And it depends, they, they pay a great deal of attention to understanding the types of risks and what those impacts are. So, you know, we talk about um, robust versus resilient. And the difference is essentially a robust supply chain is a supply chain where you can't afford to have any break in production. You, you need constant supply. There can be no interruption at all. So those are what we call just-in-case supply chains. And they tend to have a lot of redundancy built in because if an earthquake hits one plant, you want to be able to immediately have supply kick up from another plant or maybe two or three other plants. And there we see actually that a global production chain is a risk management strategy because it allows you to diversify the risk. The other type of risk is a what we call a, a just-in-time supply mm -hmm. chain. Uh, and there you can afford to have a break in production. What matters is the speed with which you're able to recover. And so obviously all these risk management strategies, you know, for companies as for countries, have different trade-offs and different costs. So companies assess what is the level of risk that they can tolerate. Do they need to absolutely know they can continue supply? Or is it more important to have um, to be able to pick up again? And depending on that, they may have multiple suppliers. They may have single suppliers in which they invest heavily. They may have geographically close uh, um, production or geographically dispersed. So there are there's no one size fits all. Um, and I think one of the last things that's important to highlight on this is we never know what the next risk is going to be. Some companies, especially larger multinationals, have responded by having bigger inventory as well. What's the upshot of that for the whole supply chain, the whole picture? I think one of the things that COVID-19 has done is make um, companies and countries reassess the nature of risk. Uh, so for some, that means realising that for certain types of goods, you need to have a, a bigger buffer stock or you need to have bigger um, stockpiles. So that can be regional or it can be local. Those have actually existed in food for some time. In fact, uh, 
Following the food price crisis of 2007 and 8, the G20 initiated a, a system called the Agricultural Market Information System, or AMIS, or in French, AMI, friends, right. uh, where countries pool information on the available stocks of the four main staple crops worldwide. And that's the idea of calming markets, preventing panic buying, preventing hoarding, because people know that there's enough food. They know there's enough wheat. They know there's enough rice, uh, you know, and maize globally. Uh, and so those, that's the importance of trans, um, transparency and information, as well as having stocks. It depends a little bit as well. In some cases, you might, uh, you might go for stockpiles. In others, you might go for more rapid production capacity. So this, this is really uh, a sort of supply chain and, and company-specific decision. The other trend that we're seeing is companies looking at diversification. So in the early days, particularly when China was first hit, a number of companies realised that they were highly exposed to production in China, that all their, all their eggs were in the China basket. And for some of those companies, um, they may be saying, well, should we have several sources of supply? Are we too reliant on one country? Should we also look towards other countries? And I just stress that this is quite different from a renationalizing debate. This is about genuinely diversifying globally. The extent to which you can diversify production actually depends a lot on what it is you're producing. Not everything can be produced everywhere uh, and not everything can be produced cost-effectively everywhere. So again, it's, it's those questions of trade-offs. About fiscal stimulus packages and job protection schemes, um, these things can be a little bit tricky um, in that they support companies and jobs in sectors that need help, like the airline or automotive industries, but sometimes they can also distort trade. Could you, could you help us with that? One of the things that, that we'll need to see sort of, you know, as in, in the wake of COVID is how do you ensure that that kind of government support doesn't become uh, a source of two problems. One is unfair competition in, in global markets mm -hmm. where countries are unable to create jobs for their people, opportunities for their people, livelihoods, because they're forced out of uh, global markets, not because they can't produce good things, but because somebody else has deeper pockets. So, you know, we try to avoid that kind of problem. But the second problem as well is that it's really important when, when government support is given that it goes to uh, things from which uh, it is, represents an efficient and good use of resources. So from the OECD work that we've done over many years of measuring government support, and we've done that for agriculture for 30 years and, and also for fossil fuels, for fisheries, and now for industrial sectors, one of the things that we see is that um, support that is goes to the sort of general support to the sector. So investments from which everyone can benefit. So in the case of digitalization, that may be education and training. It may be building digital infrastructure. In the farm world, it may be research and development or, or services that help farmers manage their farms and manage their production better. Those are the kinds of broad-based government support but really general services from which everyone benefits. And so you're so, saying as, as opposed to support for specific companies, is that what you mean? Yes, 
Yeah, mm -hmm. different from the kind of support that goes to keeping to, in the case of agriculture, individual producers, or in the case of industrial subsidies, individual firms. And there, the devil's in the detail. Well, thanks for talking to us, Julia. My pleasure. And thanks for listening to OECD Podcasts. I'm Claire Young. To find out more about what we've been talking about, read the OECD's report, COVID-19 and International Trade, Issues and Actions. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and soundcloud.com slash OECD.